great. For those who uh, are new to us, we are currently in a series. In fact, this is the last part of our series on being countercultural. And really, this whole series has been about how we, as the church, as God's children, as God's ambassadors, how we can engage with a culture that is increasingly becoming less and less like the, the, the traditional biblical values, if you like, that we adhere to. How do we engage with this culture in a loving, but ultimately transforming way? We know as we read through Scripture that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to be bringers of hope, bringers of light, bringers of joy. We're called to be those who are justice seekers, those who are peacemakers, those who bring comfort in a very tough world, to bring healing in a very broken world. We're called to be bringers of life, to speak words of life and truth, not just in this context, but in the world, in our workplace, in our schools, in our families and in our homes. Alan Scott tweeted just the other week, I just thought it was so good. He just said, being a disciple of Jesus is not about being strong enough to survive our culture, but actually being bold enough to transform our culture. That's what it's about, isn't it? I love that. We're not here to berate and to moan or to hold on until Jesus returns we're here to speak about a better way, a way of freedom, a way of life. It's what Jesus came. I have come that you might have life and have it in all its abundance. And perhaps, arguably, the greatest challenge at the moment that we face as a church is in this whole area of sexuality and gender. It is huge at the moment. And, you know, we're touching on things in this series that perhaps we don't preach on very much. But, you know, it's good to look at these. It's good to look at these real-life challenges. And as with most of these topics we've been looking at throughout this series, really, this warrants a whole series in its own right. And, and maybe we will do that, because I think it warrants it. But this morning, we're just really just going to have a snapshot, take a snapshot of where we are as a society where we are as a culture, and then we're going to try and reframe the way we approach this, maybe reframe some of our questions to these real challenges by looking at the Word of God and then seeing the implications that that brings for us as His church. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You that You are the author of life that in you we find our true identity, that in you we find true freedom. And I just thank you, Lord, for what we've already been singing about and hearing about your grace, about the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things, and you've called us to surrender our very lives to you. And I pray right at the start as we just look briefly at this topic that there, we will have hearts of surrender to you. We will surrender our own prejudices. We will surrender our own kind of 
even our own traditions, to earnestly seek your way. We surrender to you, Lord. Amen. So where are we at? I don't think any of us need convincing that actually there is deep brokenness and real confusion and hurt and pain in the area of our sexuality. We've seen, I suppose, the traditional model of monogamy swept aside in favor of keeping your options open. We've got programs like Love Island on ITV2, which is addictive viewing for many. If you don't know what Love Island is, the, the basic premise is there's a lot of uh, very beautiful, slightly plastic-looking people that are put together on an island, beautiful surroundings, with the whole premise of coupling up to win prizes. And the, the ultimate prize, if you keep being voted in, if you keep being entertaining and keep finding partners, you win £50,000. And of course, there's a slight drawback because there's always an odd number of people in the house. Cue a whole pile of uh, speed dating, producers throwing in challenges, opportunities for betrayal, let's spice things up, it's great for ratings, etc., etc. And it has proved to be addictive viewing for many. But what's also coming to the surface is people are recognizing the unhealthiness of that approach. There's been even headlines this week recognizing this, saying that dating in the age of Love Island proves just how disposable relationships have become. Another headline, we are becoming a nation of disposable daters, with women in particular feeling used, objectified, valueless. You know, this, this Tinder generation just sort of swipes left and we move on to the next one. And of course, the whole irony of this sort of sexual liberation is that it leads just to huge bondage, deep pain, because following your unbridled passions just enslaves you to those very passions. As Mike was saying, if you live by the flesh, you'll die by the flesh. We're called to live by the Spirit, to live in a different way. And I mean, comedian Russell Brand has been very vocal on this. If you know him, he was uh, known for his hedonistic lifestyle, and he had some sort of spiritual encounter. Uh, he got off drugs, and he redefined his whole life. And to be honest, I don't know really where he's at spiritually. I think he's trying a little bit of everything, to be honest. But he has been very candid in how he now reflects on that original, his previous life of hedonism. And, and he said that for him, sex was, was worship. It was worship. It was his altar. And yet he said throughout his lifestyle, there was this thread of loneliness that ran right the way through it. He said that Everything this culture tells you to go for, he said, ultimately is toxic. It's ultimately toxic. And he said it took him a long while to recognize the, the, the emotional and spiritual cost, not just to himself, but to those he was intimate with. There is a cost to this spiritual liberation. Moving on, we've seen the redefinition of, of marriage sweep in. Same-sex attraction is normalized, and we, we've, got the, we've had the LGBT community fighting for equal rights, and we seem to be in the next stage of that, 
as the transgender community is now fighting for equal rights too. And this is, in, this is so current. You know, it's estimated that over half a million people in the UK str- are struggling with gender dysphoria, struggling with just a, a, a real distress and a very real conflict within them because either their, their body they think is lying to them, their biological body is lying to them, or simply that they would prefer not to have any gender distinction because they just don't feel they fit the mold, whatever that is. And we've got to the point now where I think there's over 14 different ways you can describe who you are. You know, not just lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, you can also be asexual, pansexual, demisexual, Somebody introduced themselves recently as asexual biromantic. In other words, they, they like the idea of a bi relationship, but not the actual physical side. It's, these are real people, real people, deeply searching for identity, deeply searching for a place in this world. And things are changing at a massive rate. Right now, the government, <laughs> amongst other things, you'd have thought they got a lot on their plate at the moment, don't mention Brexit, but they're also discussing changes to the Gender Recognition Act. Right now, they're looking at potentially enabling anyone who identifies themselves as a particular gender would gain all the rights to that. And so if I decided that I'm going to now identify myself as a woman, Potentially, that will give me the right to be able to go into any women's changing rooms or toilets because that's who I'm identifying with. And, and this is sparking, obviously, a huge backlash, particularly with, actually, at the moment, with feminist groups who are saying, hold on, we've been fighting for women's rights. We've been fighting for safe places for women to protect our girls. And this, is, this isn't right. It's interesting. They're now being labeled bigoted. It, there's, a, there's, there's a struggle going on, huge struggle going on right now in our culture. On top of all that, we've, we've of course got this ongoing struggle between the sexes, you know, particularly highlighted with this, the Me Too campaign, where it's just been unearthed, this, this revelation of years and years of abuse from men in powerful situations, using that power, manipulating their position to get what they want. I don't know about you, but my heart goes out to this generation. There is so much pain, so much confusion, and there is a desperate need to feel a place to belong. It's a desperate need, but there is hope amongst this tangle. There is a better story than the one we are seeing around us in our culture It's often said, if you lose your way, the best place to start is back at the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Michaela used a similar illustration. You know, when things are are kind of broken, hit the reset button. And so we're going to do that again. We're going to go back to Genesis. We've been spending a long time in Genesis for different reasons throughout this series. If you've got your Bibles, do just turn up to Genesis chapter 1. The reason being because this truly is God's blueprint for life. And you know what? I believe that the Bible is a much better source of authority than my own understanding. The Bible's a much better source of authority than my own feelings. The Bible is a much higher source of authority than general consensus. You know, it, it, it bypasses, it helps remove 
our, our particular glasses, our own prejudices, our limited uh, reasoning, we get back to the blueprints. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Kind of seems a bit obvious, but it starts with God and it's his plan. I think it's good just to remind ourselves about that, particularly when we're talking about subjects that touch the very deepest parts of who we are, our identity, our sexuality. It's so important to understand this is his plan. This world is his creation. And through reading the creation story, you can see how order and beauty actually comes through God drawing distinctions. You see him creating the the sun and the moon. We see him creating the earth and the sky, the land and the sea, teeming with living creatures. And then he makes man and woman uniquely in his image, uniquely as image bearers of God. Let's read from verse 26. It says, uh, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are God's masterstroke, his final piece in creation story. We are made in his image and that is a massively important statement. As Rob shared the other week, that gives real value to every single human being on this planet. There is this sanctity of life. But even more than that, being made in his image means that we can both relate to God as no other living creature can, but also that we can represent God on this earth like no other living creature can. We relate to God and we can represent God. We uniquely carry his authority to rule and to subdue, to bring his order to bring his glory. We're made to display his glory here on the earth like nothing else can. It's incredible, isn't it? And how do we represent him as both male and female? You know, the only thing in the creation story it's often mentioned that is not good or was not good was for man to be on his own. And yet, of course, God didn't just say, well, here's a, here's a dog. He will keep you company. You know, they're they're great companions. Didn't bring a dog or another animal. God didn't make a carbon copy of Adam and said, you're going to get along great. Exactly the same. No, what he did was make somebody who was totally like him, yet beautifully distinct. Like him, yet beautifully distinct. And I, I love Adam's response when he first sees Eve. 
Verse 23, he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Eve had a distinctiveness that was absolutely vital to their fulfilling this, this mandate, this calling to fill the earth and subdue it. Kind of fairly obvious, isn't it? Biologically, without Eve and the way she is made, there would be no children. Without Adam and the way he is made, there would be no children. It seems very obvious. But also in their complementary strengths. Man and woman were designed to beautifully complement one another, to work together in fulfilling this mandate, to bring God's glory and God's rule, to reflect his splendor and his authority on earth. And this interdependency is reflected right the way through the creation story, this wonderful entwining and interdependency. What I see through this is that Gender difference is not some manufactured Victorian concept designed to repress women. That's simply called sin. Gender is the glorious design of God for men and women to partner together to fulfill their calling on this earth. And God described that as very good. Very good. So what's that got to do with us today? Well, I believe... God's blueprint shows us that gender really matters, that our biological makeup matters, that we're not just people in a shell. I heard this illustration the other day, so I'm going to nick it, but most of us have got mobile phones. And there comes a time when it's upgrade time. Or some of you just think, I've got to have the latest phone. And what happens? The phone arrives, shiny and new, and twice the size of your old one. And we, we hook up to our iCloud and we download again all our contacts and all our apps and all our preferences into the new phone. And, and we turn the new phone on and it just looks like our old phone. There it is. It's got everything that I like. It's got all my little preferences there. It's just in a new body, a new chassis. And I think we can have a temptation to think of our bodies in the same way, that this is just a shell this, this, this body that we inhabit, it doesn't really matter what we do with it. It's not really who I am inside. You know, even if it doesn't fit the person that I feel I am, then I can ignore it or change it. No, our, our God-given bodies are deeply connected to who we are. It's what the Bible shows and demonstrates. Deeply connected. Men and women are designed to be gloriously different Gloriously complementary, our brains, our body shape, the fact that we have different chromosomes, even our inherent instincts. And I'm not talking about the unhelpful stereotypes that so often we try and put on people. I think it's important to express that. Men and women have just, we are beautifully, uniquely made by God. And we all have different characteristics. I'm not talking about the the sort of traditional gender stereotypes. But there are, I believe, clear male tendencies and clear female tendencies that actually root back, right back to this call to fill the earth and subdue it together. This 
cultural mission, as it's sometimes described. We're called to partner together. And, and just as an aside, you know, I know a lot of people can take issue with the fact that Eve was created to be Adam's helper. It sounds really belittling, a bit derogatory, Adam's little helper. But of course, as you read through scripture, you see that very same word helper used to describe God in helping his people in battle. There is nothing derogatory about that term. It's about partnering together in the mission, created different but equal. Equal does not mean identical. We see that in the Godhead. We see that right the way through creation. And we see it beautifully between a man and a woman. I think that's why it really matters that we speak into the confusion surrounding gender, where there is a real urge in our culture, just to, let's just do away with these unhelpful terms, man and woman. Let's, let's just blur the lines. Let's rub out the distinctions. Let's do away with it because for a large proportion of the world, being male has meant dominance and oppression and being female has meant being second rate, being a doormat. Again, that is simply a result of sin. You know, we read in Genesis 3, that as Adam and Eve shunned God's authority, and with that, their role to rule together as male and female over creation, as God's ambassadors, as part of the judgment of that, God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that term rule there means a domineering, a controlling rule. This is a result of sin, and we see this sin pattern worked out very graphically with the whole Me Too situation. It's sin. And so we can come to this conversation with all sorts of baggage and all sorts of hurts. That's why we need to start from a different place. Go back to the beginning. See the beauty of the original plan. This, this beautiful dance that God has created, this beautiful harmony of male and femaleness, united in mission and purpose. I think the application for us goes even deeper, actually, and even further. Because if God created men and women to work together to fulfill this cultural mission, he also created us to work together to fulfill the Great Commission, of course, that Jesus gave in Matthew 28 of making disciples. And if sin messed up this this cultural mandate, if you like, that we no longer bring God's rule on the whole to this earth. Matthew 28, if you like, is a recommissioning for us to glorify God by bringing his victory, the victory that Jesus won on the cross, into every area of society, into every area of life. That starts by making disciples, people redeemed to bear his likeness once more. People redeemed to carry his authority once more. Redeemed to reveal once again his love and his grace to the world. And if the cultural mandate was to, you know, rooted in bringing about physical new birth to multiply, the Great Commission is our call together to bring about spiritual new birth to eternal life. And I think this has big ramifications for us as a church. Because to do that, we need spiritual mothers and we need spiritual fathers to bring about spiritual new birth 
to bring about a sense of nurturing and protecting and guiding and encouraging. And I think that is amazing news for whoever you are. If you are single, if you are married, if you are young, if you are old, there is this call to partner together as God's family, men and women, empowered by the Holy Spirit to see new life come into spiritually dead places, to redeem Actually, what authority truly is all about, it's not about domineering and oppression, but about sacrificially laying down our lives. You know, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, for men and women to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, for the church to be made up of spiritual brothers and sisters and mums and dads, this, this one big family on mission together using our complementary gifts and skills together, not to recruit new members to an organization, but to bring about new birth, new children into the family of God. Do you see church like that? We're in the birthing process. We need each other. Gender matters. But also what I feel this blueprint of God tells us is that what we do with our bodies matters. Obviously, core to God's original command to fill the earth and multiply was sexual union, united as one flesh. But actually, sexual intimacy was always designed to reflect a greater reality. You know, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman is just reflecting the covenant relationship between Christ and his church. There is a bigger picture, a greater reality that marriage models. You know, the intimacy and the security, the feeling of being able to totally be yourself and be loved and be accepted, nothing to hide. It's just a reflection of a deeper reality that every single one of us can experience. A deeper intimacy, a oneness with God through Jesus Christ. That's why Marriage between one man and one woman matters because it's about covenant. You know, lose its meaning and sexual intimacy simply becomes another appetite to feed. Just like eating a burger to fulfill a hunger pang. And to be honest, if you view it in that context, if you take it out of the context of the reflecting the bigger picture, this covenant relationship, if you remove all that, then actually, who does it matter? Why does it matter? What does it matter? Who I sleep with? I'm just meeting a need. I'm satisfying an appetite. You know, traditional values just seem so archaic. What has this got anything to do with modern life? It's an inherent need in every person to be sexually active. That when you take it out of the context of a covenant relationship, then you can see why people talk like that. And yet I think if people are totally honest, most people know that sexual intimacy touches us at a far deeper level than our physical bodies. Treated cheaply, it leaves scars. It impacts us at soul level. And the reason for that is right here. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It unites us at soul level. And 1 Corinthians 6 is pretty hard hitting in this area of what we do with our bodies. Verse 15, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Do you not know 
that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We've got that same language being used, the flesh and the spirit. As followers of Jesus, what we do with our bodies really matters. Again, Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee therefore from sexual immorality. It's one of the, I think it's one of the few sins that we're told to just run from. Just get out of there. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body, this thing, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you are not your own. And the truth is, not one of us is left unaffected by sin corrupting our view of sexuality. Not one of us, I believe, has been left unaffected. And maybe, you know, you, you're not dealing with same-sex attraction or gender, dys gender dysphoria, but maybe you have experienced the pain of a broken covenant relationship. Maybe you've experienced the cost of cheap intimacy, the lure of pornography. I don't think there is a single person in this room who hasn't been impacted in some way by the brokenness in this whole area. And of course, this is therefore the beauty of the gospel. Again, what we've been talking about, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that his grace is enough. Paul goes on to say, actually, it's just before that section, verse 9, Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, all our sin, all our brokenness, all our shame, all our confusion, he nailed to the cross with himself and he left it there so we could walk free, whole, holy. That's why we're not our own. We've been bought at a cost, the blood of Jesus. And nothing washes us whiter than the blood of Jesus, his redeeming, sanctifying blood. But it calls for us to therefore walk in that freedom, to live according to the Spirit and not being a slave to the flesh, being a slave to our own passions. It calls to honor God, for us to honor God with our bodies and hold the highest view of sexual intimacy, whether you're married or single. It's also understanding that sexual in intimacy is not the end goal. As I said, it reflects something far greater 
And possibly, I think the biggest lie that the world tells us about this whole area of sexuality is that our identity is totally rooted in it. I believe that's a lie. There's a lie that says sex is intrinsic to our human fulfillment, that you're considered abnormal if you're not sexually active, that it's a right as a human being, that we're just meeting this carnal need. Yet we follow Jesus, who never married, who never had sex, and yet was the most complete human being to have ever walked this earth. Let's not be deceived by the lies. Sexual union reflects a greater intimacy and a greater fulfillment, which we can know in Christ. For those who are same-sex attracted, this is a seriously sacrificial call as you surrender your whole life to live honoring God. And there's, there's quite a few examples. You know, the Reverend Sam Albury, I would just hold up as an amazing example of somebody who is same-sex attracted, yet he believes the only context for sexual union is within the marriage between a man and a woman. And he gave a speech, perhaps you've seen it, it's been on YouTube a lot, to the General Synod earlier this year about how the message of Jesus Christ, Christ for him, a same-sex attracted male, is actually still a life-giving message to him. Because his identity is in Christ and not in his sexuality. His fulfillment is in Jesus Christ and his relationship with him. Taking up that cross to follow Jesus looks different for all of us. But at its very heart is this confession that I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. But as Sam Albury would say, that price has brought me and bought me life. It's been said that we live in a, with this Genesis 1 blueprint, but in a Genesis 3 fallen world. But praise God, we're heading to a Revelation 21 finish, where there will be a new heaven and a new earth, where Jesus will make all things new. And for those who are desperately struggling with their gender and sexuality, there is real hope. For us who have experienced brokenness in this whole area of sexuality, there is real hope. And as the family of God, we have a responsibility to tell the world about this better story than the one that we see unfolding all around us. That we have a responsibility to reach out to everyone Whatever their background, straight, gay, trans, whatever, we have a responsibility to reach out to a hurting and broken world and to tell the world that in Christ there is wholeness, that in Christ there is real belonging, that in Christ there is real freedom. But actually, we need to do more than just tell it. We need to demonstrate it. We need to demonstrate it in our own families, in our own relationships, in our own private lives. We need to, to demonstrate it as a church. Demonstrate this beautiful original design that is being redeemed through Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop there. If we could get the band up, if that's okay. Why don't we just stand to our feet if you're able?
I just want to pray for us as a church. There'll be time for personal prayer. I'm aware a subject like this. You might want to just reflect a little bit deeper. You might want to speak to a, a trusted friend. I'm very happy to chat with people as well. But Father, we just come to you as broken people redeemed by the grace of God. And Father, I just pray that as men and women here today, we will model something of that beautiful dance, that beautiful harmony, as we live out and fulfill the great commission to make disciples of all nations, to tell the world that there is a better story. And Father, I pray for anyone here who has been impacted by the brokenness of sin impacting what your original design was for sexual intimacy. Father, I pray for healing. For those who are covered by shame, Father, I pray that that truth, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, will just resonate at a heart level. Father, I pray where repentance and confession is needed. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you just put your finger on our hearts where we have at times lived according to the flesh and not according to your spirit. Lord, I thank you that recognition is the first step. Confession is the next. And receiving your incredible forgiveness is the next one. I pray, help us to believe that you are a God who remembers our sins no more, who declares us righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are a people who can walk free, free from our past, free from what people have done to us and what we've done ourselves. I pray for freedom to come in this place, in this whole area of our sexuality, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's worship God.